You're listening to Greater LA from KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiotakis. Is this trash? No. We're at a compost harvesting ceremony at the Wesley School in North Hollywood. These kids in NoHo have been tossing all their discarded food, an unfinished burrito, a rejected side of carrots, into one of these five-foot-tall cylindrical containers that line the side of the cafeteria. Is it waste? It's food waste. And today, they get to see what happened to it after a year. Local farmer turned composting consultant Stephen Winbrandt gets ready for the big reveal. I'm hearing questions. Is it going to smell? Is it, what's it going to look like? Is it going to spill out? But this isn't a story about food waste. It's about inspiring hope in our youngest generation, the ones most vulnerable to climate change. Want to crack this baby open and see what we got in here? Yeah! KCRW's Kaylee Wells picks up the story from here. Do you know how old this compost is? Dozens of elementary and middle schoolers at this K-8 school are sitting in a semicircle around Stephen Winbrandt as he cuts open the final layer of the barrel. Some of them are squirming and straining to see and subtly, steadily, inching closer to get a better look. If you can't tell by the impromptu happy birthday sung at the shrouded food waste, the kids are stoked to see what's inside. Okay, are you ready? Finally, he rips open the container and out spills dark, moist dirt teeming with worms. What I want to ask you is, what does this smell like? Smells earthy. earthy. It doesn't stink. Yeah. More than 5,000 pounds of tossed lunches have been turned into compost so far. And that's great news for the climate. The kids already know that, thanks to their science teacher, Joanna Hampton Walker. We're talking about the methane being an issue uh, because if it goes in the landfill, it's just more production of methane. And methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases that warm the planet. But by composting the food waste, the kids are helping the earth instead. Now, you might have heard of the new law that lets Californians put their food waste into green bins to be picked up with the trash. So it would be a lot easier to toss the school's food waste into those bins to be whisked away to an industrial compost facility. And that would have the same impact on the planet. But that's not the point, says Hampton Walker. When it's invisible like that, they don't see it. They don't, they, they know, but it doesn't sink in. But when sixth grader Finn Hollier saw the finished compost pile... That's my orange chicken in there. It sank in. Oh my God, that's my food. Like, um, that's not just like any food. Somewhere in there is my food. Fifth grader Kingston Mitchell was excited to learn his old food would help grow new food right on campus. It feels good that, like, you're doing something to help the planet instead of just sitting and watching it, like, get destroyed. That kind of response is part of why Winbrandt does this. A lot of us, especially kids, feel really overwhelmed and powerless and don't know what to do. This is quite an existential crisis. And how do we make a difference? How do we make a dent? He's made a business calling up local organizations, mostly schools, and offering to kickstart their composting program. I come in, so I build the containers, I install the containers, 
and I teach the lead composters how to do this method. After the school is self-sufficient enough, like after today at the first compost harvest, he heads off like Mary Poppins on to the next school that's requested his services. Now we can use the new dirt to make more plants that we can use for hot lunch and, st and, and other stuff. Gemma Elliott is among the small group of fifth graders who helped on Wednesdays to clean and prepare the food waste. Her friend, Sloan Montgomery, says some of them felt so inspired that she started taking climate action outside of school, too. We did a lemonade stand at our friend's house, and uh, we made over $200, and we donated it to the NRDC, which is the National... national er, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Defense Council, yeah. They also helped create a petition to replace the plastic forks and spoons in the school cafeteria with compostable ones. Jennifer Silverstein says this composting program checks a lot of the boxes for effective, positive climate education. She's a therapist, a social worker, and part of the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America. It's like all these horrible things are happening, and there's all these adults out there who are really actively trying to make it better, and here's ways you can participate. Silverstein says part of helping kids understand the gravity of climate change is to build their window of tolerance to new and sometimes devastating information. And you do that, she says, by allowing them to move around, be outside in nature, and participate in collective action. She says when you're explaining to kids the facts about a warming planet... It's really important that the conversations include not just solutions, but things that we can witness, things that we see, especially that kids see adults around them doing. They also get a taste of, like, this is what it feels like to do good action in groups. Even the kids who weren't getting their hands dirty at school say they feel like they're helping. Knowing I'm a part of something good just helps me sleep at night. For Leo Castagnetti, the compost has inspired him to feel hopeful. If we can just work together, it's... It's all going to be okay, and everything's going to work out fine. For KCRW, I'm Kaylee Wells. Well, coming up in about eight minutes on Greater LA, an artist and photographer who left so much to discover in a suitcase. That's just ahead. First, a word about discovery. Think about all the things that you discover with KCRW. You're listening during the season of giving back. Our fundraiser, our end-of-year fundraiser, and it's a wonderful time to make a tax-deductible donation. And we thank you for spending your year with us and discovering all kinds of things with KCRW and, of course, for your support. If you're able to, please consider making an end-of-year donation to keep KCRW a part of your life in the coming year as well so you can keep on discovering. And today only, one out of or I should say one of our KCRW champions, Mark Sandelson, will match your gift up to $10,000. So special incentive going on right now. And when you give, you'll see your dollars doubled today only. Do it for your taxes. Do it for the holidays. Do it for KCRW's place in your daily life. And, of course, do it for discovery at kcrw.com slash give. That's kcrw.com slash give. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your continued support of public radio. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. KCRW, it's Greater LA. I'm Steve Chiatakis. Let's discover some great music now in an unlikely place. You're listening to the sounds of Street Symphony. It's a nonprofit bringing classical music to the streets of Skid Row. That's where Street Symphony is hosting their ReSound Festival this Sunday. It's a free event providing live music hot food and health resources back into the community. Organizers are hoping the music will drum up joy all across Skid Row, a place that hasn't seen much joy. And here to talk with us is violinist and activist Vijay Gupta, who founded Street Symphony after winning the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship and while playing violin with the L.A. Phil. Vijay, welcome to you. Hi there. Great to be on with you. What a neat holiday story, too. As I, as I said, you were still playing violin at the L.A. Phil when you started Street Symphony. What, what got you thinking about doing something like that? Well, back in 2008, I met a man named Nathaniel Ayers, who was the subject of a book and a movie called The Soloist. And I became Nathaniel's violin teacher. He was my guide to Skid Row. And at first, I wanted to meet more people like him. Maybe not necessarily a Juilliard-trained musician like he was, but people who could be touched and moved by music. And in 2011, I officially formed a nonprofit organization that to date has brought over 1,400 free concerts, workshops, and lessons to people living in skid row shelters, clinics, county jails, and state prisons. What, what drew you to doing this on skid row? Well, you know, at first I was drawn to Skid Row because of just the open wound of Skid Row, you know, the the sort of the ugliness of it, the it felt like a gut punch, you know, it felt like just a mile away from where I was playing on stage at Walt Disney Concert Hall is the largest unhoused community in America. How could this still be our Los Angeles? And yet when I started playing music in shelters and clinics in Skid Row, I met some of the most sensitive people, some of the most appreciative audiences of not just classical music, but once we started bringing in other forms of music as well, these were people who were curious and engaged and they, their lives weren't just about misery and pain. They deserved joy as well. And Street Symphony is, uh, you know, poised to provide that for all of us. Yeah, they're called human beings, right? Mm, and mm. you you look at, the morass right that that's there and and it it it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. and to to put music together there of all places i can't even imagine so i would i would ask you i guess what the music scene was like on skid row like how getting getting it there in the first place how difficult was that well, you know, at first I was so overwhelmed by Skid Row and so drawn to wanting to make music there that I just wanted to pitch up a string quartet on the sidewalk of Fifth and San Pedro and start playing. <laughs> but uh, luckily I uh, partnered with a number of incredible organizations and one such partner is the Midnight Mission, a 12-step recovery shelter and, and amazing organization. It's been around for over 100 years in Skid Row. And, you know, these are, are folks who are going through the crucible of life, people taking the very step 
fir- first steps of sobriety, getting their lives back together. And, you know, making music in Skid Row fulfills the sort of human impulse to take what's dark and twisted and painful inside us and make something that nourishes So this week, we actually have our 100th event at the Midnight Mission, which is going to be followed this Sunday, December 10th, by Street Symphony's 8th Annual Messiah Project, which this year is going to be our ReSound Festival, a day-long celebration of music and community. We're going to have a short performance of Handel's Messiah, as well as performances from jazz, reggae, mariachi, son jarocho, and West. African musicians as well. And these are musical ensembles that have been performing in Skid Row shelters and clinics on a weekly basis for Street Symphony all year long. Uh, And this Sunday's festival is a culmination of our year's activities in the community. And, and the festival, by the way, is for everyone. It's not just if you're if you're staying on Skid Row, right? The festival is open to everyone. It's happening at Void Studios in the Arts District. Everyone is welcome. There's plenty of parking. There's going to be plenty of food. But we're also partnering with the Department of Public Health to provide vaccinations, Narcan training, harm reduction. We're also partnering with organizations that are providing hygiene kits and free haircuts and free physical therapy. So every Everyone is welcome. Come hear some great music. Feed the body, feed the soul. Feed the body, feed the soul. I I think we would be remiss, though, VJ, if we didn't talk about you for a second, because you started playing with the L.A. Phil at age 19. (laughs) I can't even think about what I was doing. I think I was thinking about, you know, like my next pack of cigarettes at age (laughs) 19. So so what you you, my friend, at age 19 with the L.A. Philharmonic, how does that even happen? Well, I was very lucky. I mean, of course, I I had been playing the violin since a very young age. I had great teachers. I was lucky to study on the East Coast in some amazing conservatories. But, you know, I thought I had a better shot of jumping off a chair and landing on the moon than winning my first orchestral audition. And when I joined the LA Philharmonic, I was surrounded by colleagues and and really mentors who adopted me. There there were people who were already friends with Nathaniel Ayers. Um, The movie was being being shot at Walt Disney Concert Hall the you know the month I joined the orchestra so I was I was given a very warm welcome and the very first people who said yes to going to Skid Row with me were my colleagues the musicians of the LA Philharmonic who are still like my family even though it's been 5 years since I left the orchestra to focus my activities on street symphony full time but they're still my family we're going to have some incredible musicians from a number of great organizations we're also lucky to have um, some singers from the LA Master Chorale. I'm playing with a number of young musicians from all over Los Angeles. So it really is a family effort for us. And then you <laughs> then you win the MacArthur Prize, which is a nice mm. big check. Or or maybe mm. not. Maybe not a big check because it seems like there is much more of a need than there is money, right? Well, you know, and and the other thing that I think I've learned being on Skid Row is that there are many, many forms of wealth. You know, there's many forms of currency. One of the things that we often talk about is how difficult it is to develop trust and continuity with people living in Skid Row. You know, relationships are the currency of trust in Skid Row. And once again, I'm so grateful that we've partnered with the Midnight Mission and the Downtown Women's Center, these folks who are the real angels. You can't put a price tag on the work that these organizations do because they are there every 
single day, 24-7. And many of the social workers who work in Skid Row used to be on Skid Row, you know, and, and they do this work quietly without any need for uh, applause, and they deserve all of it. So if you want to serve this holiday season, go to Skid Row, go volunteer at any of the organizations that are down there. There is always a need. And, you know, I can't, I can't stress enough how much we get out of it. You know, we get so much applause for being folks who go down and, and, and play in Skid Row. But, you know, we as the musicians are given far greater the gift um, because we're reminded by these audiences um, why we ever became musicians in the first place. And another thing I'll say is that there's so many musicians who live in Skid Row. And as part of this Resound Festival, we're actually premiering new songs written by the residents of these shelters. So please come on down and, and hear this great music happening on Sunday. Yeah, downtown Los Angeles in Skid Row. Vijay Gupta, thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking with us today, and good luck to you. Happy holidays. Thank you, Steve. You as well. By the way, you can learn more about the festival by checking out our website, kcrw.com GLA. Moving on now with Greater L.A. from KCRW, I'm Steve Chitakis. Next week on the show, we're going to take a trip in a Waymo where there's no one in the driver's seat. How automated rides will fit into L.A.'s transportation future. Now to a trip to Palm Springs and a museum. You know, Southern California has always been a magnet for those who think a little differently, shall we say. Innovators, artists, folks who would probably be considered flat-out weirdos in other parts of the country and world. Well, sometimes those strange, brilliant souls receive praise during their lifetime, but often the recognition doesn't come until after they're gone, as was the case with photographer Joan Archibald, known by the moniker Callie. She was a pioneer of psychedelic art and a documentarian of the colorful California landscape of the 60s and 70s. She kept all of that totally under wraps during her lifetime, but now... There's a chance to finally see her work and learn about her strange life in a new exhibit at the Palm Springs Art Museum. And Matt Tiernauer is a director and documentarian, and he co-authored a book called Callie, Artographer. Hi, Matt. Hi. Callie with a K, as in California. Is that what we're talking about? It's unknown. Uh, there's a lot of mystery to this story, either California with a K, like Callie, or Callie, the Hindu god of death and destruction. She's born on Long Island in New York. At what point did she come to Cali, California? Well, you know, she's a real 20th century, mid-century um, life, I think, to study. Uh, you know, divorce was so taboo in the 60s, even into the 70s, and she left her husband. She had two children, and she just drove across the country and ended up in Malibu, as so many people did then. Uh, and then she kind of became a beach bum in Malibu, going from house to house. It sort of reminds me of that Joan Diddy and Robert Altman L.A. of the 70s, where an attractive young woman would be invited to any beach party. And that's how she sort of started out here. Uh, then eventually her children joined her, and uh, she started a covert career as a photographer, or as she put it, artographer, a term she actually uh, trademarked. 
And uh, that was supposed to kind of uh, encompass and describe her unique style. Can you do that? I guess you can, right? I guess you can trademark those things. Do they? Do those trademarks still stand, or did, did they go away in her passing? The documentation for the trademarks exists, and she had all of these materials made up with the copyright symbol. It's strange, and one of the mysteries of this unknown secret photographer was that she never really attempted to sell or exhibit her work, which she was incredibly prolific. When she died in 2019, there were thousands and thousands of prints and negatives that had never been seen that were stored in white American tourist or suitcases in her house in the Pacific Palisades and were discovered by her daughter. And that um, was a rare, a rare discovery because it was a complete body of work that was very considered but had never been seen. And uh, it's rare to see someone's posthumous body of work intact like this. And that's part of what makes her such an interesting discovery and interesting artist. Interesting discovery. And, and the thing, I guess, that confuses me a little bit is the fact that she came to Malibu. She was well socialized, right, out and about, taking pictures, trademarking her name and uh, artographer, her trade, I guess, and we didn't really know what she was doing at the time. Is that, I mean, were people, did people understand that she was this artist trying to do something? I think our friends knew that she was a photographer, but her process was so elaborate. The look of it is very sort of tie-dye 70s, think of a Doors album cover, a bit psychedelic could have been cover art for Rolling Stone, but it was an elaborate process that wasn't traditional. So she took the black and white photographs and then used her swimming pool as the stop bath, which wow. I don't think anyone had ever done before. This was a swimming pool in Palm Springs in a home she bought that had once belonged to uh, Sandra Dee and Bobby Darren. Uh, so she's out in the back at a kidney-shaped pool, uh, pouring uh, dyes and colors into the pool the pool water then uh, dyed the photographs, sort of like a tie-dye stop bath. Then she would dry them on the pool deck and use uh, spray paints to further color them. So she gets this sort of uh, Warhol silk screen, very uh, block color tie-dye effect with lots of double exposures. That's her aesthetic in that period. Of course, she had three periods. The second are Polaroids, and she also did hand coloring of those and lots of unique processes that were indeed her invention. And then the third volume was called Outer Space, which was when she had really become a recluse and maybe had been um, shut in and, and lonely and cut off from the world. She developed a strange obsession with UFOs, right? Strange, maybe not so strange, who's to say? Uh, who's to say? But she did have one. <laughs> she, had a, she also was a journaler, and the journals were discovered with the photographs, and they're really elaborate. Um, they kind of are uh, sort of a 70s version of Leonardo's journals with uh, lots of sketches, and um, she's observing at this time as a shut-in uh, UFOs, uh, she thought, uh, through the security system of her home on the closed circuit TVs. Uh, who knows whether these were insects or spider webs or dust flares and things like that. But she thought they were UFOs. She recorded them assiduously. She wrote down the time code of the security camera and then she wrote descriptions of them in great detail. Um, occasionally there's self-portraits when she ventures out in the backyard, she shows up 
uh, in the images. I'm not sure how uh, she actually took those images because uh, no one was really a witness to this process. They're incredibly haunting and uh, form an entirely different artistic period for her. And it's difficult because she was a recluse at this time. There was no one living with her. Her second husband, who was a wealthy lawyer, Carl Davis, had, uh, had died at this time. Uh, and yet she kept um, just compulsively producing work and into the white American tourister suitcases it went, into the storage cupboards it went, only to be discovered after her death. We can see the work of Joan Archibald, a.k.a. Callie, artographer, on display now at the Palm Springs Art Museum. Matt Tiernauer, the co-author of the book Callie, artographer, and the strange and mysterious life and work of Callie. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Thank you. It's going to do it for us this evening. Coming up in just a mere moment, today explained, the Biden White House wants the country to be rid of all lead pipes. What kind of money and cooperation will that take? Tomorrow on The Business at 6 o'clock, remembering TV pioneer Norman Lear and revisiting an earlier conversation with Lear, who left us earlier this week at the age of 101. Join us online anytime at kcrw.com slash GLA. Tell us how you're doing. Share a story idea with us. And, of course, grab the podcast, too, so you can get the show on the go. And while you're there online, think about a contribution to KCRW, a place where you belong, whether it be one of dozens of programs, music shows, podcasts, weekly dives into food and culture, whatever it may be, this is a place that belongs to you. And we're asking for your support during our season of giving back. KCRW.com slash give and be a part of this special place. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, Ray Guarna, Sue Margulies, Phil Richards, Amy Todd, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordall all helped run the episode this evening. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Thanks for that ear. Have a great night.